Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. My name is Kate, and this week we're joined with the wonderful Professor Megan Kaminsky. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Kate. I'm so excited to hear more about your work and talk about its relationship to plants. Um, I was wondering if you could start by briefly introducing yourself to the audience. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Megan Kaminsky, as you said, and I am a poet and an essayist, as well as a professor of creative writing and environmental studies and a courtesy professor of visual art at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. And my work uh, primarily centers on writing poetry, but also includes research in eco-writing practices, eco-arts practices, the plants humanities, and all from a perspective of queer ecology. Um, so it's a very interdisciplinary, tenderly type uh, creative practice and research practice. Could you talk a little bit more about your eco-writing? Eco-writing is something I'm really interested in, um, but don't have that much familiarity with. Sure. So what is it, and what's your process, I guess? Definitely. I started out as a more traditional poet or maybe thinking about as an experimental poet. And so I was writing about all these things that interested me. I was really interested in the pastoral tradition and thinking about the possibilities of a post-pastoral, thinking about urban ecology and the flaneur and then the possibility of the flaneus. And I was exploring all of these, these things and it was only as I started sharing my work with other people and presenting it at conferences that I started to connect with people doing work that was similar to my own. I was like, oh, this is, maybe this is where I belong. I've, I've been thinking I've been doing these things off by myself. And those, those practices fall into the category, certainly of eco-poetry and eco-poetics, but I also into thinking about eco-writing as a practice. So not just the outputs of what we produce and you know, I'm thinking about um, the idea of putting theory into practice. And I'm super, I'm super nerdy. A lot of my background is in philosophy. I'm really interested in phenomenology. I'm interested in post-Heideggerian animal studies and plant studies. I love reading Michael Martyr and thinking and Giorgio Gombin and thinking, you know, very conceptually about these ideas, but the, the practices, eco arts practices and thinking specifically of eco writing practices for me is this way to fuse these ideas, these theories that are driving my research with the actual research practices. So what does it mean to be writing from my embodied perspective as a queer woman, non-binary person living in Lawrence, Kansas. So thinking about 
the plants that this particular plants that I'm engaging with, thinking about those practices of engagement. I'm thinking a lot um, specifically coming to mind Sarah Enser's idea of Spencer, spinster ecologies and thinking about avuncular ways of tending and care um, and thinking about ensuring the future for, for other species and other beings and not just myself. So all these things coming together. And for me, this, this larger field in English studies of writing practices um, is a way to, to get into that. Um, or maybe in visual arts, thinking about eco-arts practices, but combining somatic engagement and somatic practices that are rooted in things like therapeutic modalities and choreography and thinking about our personal embodiments and thinking with you know visionary thinkers like Adrian Marie Brown, who talks about an emergent strategy, right? Like that these individual embodiments and practices and relationships and how that supporting them and believing in this idea of interconnectivity, interdependence, the idea of change and the possibility in that leads us together towards liberatory futures. So I guess that's kind of my messy tentacular way of tying this all together. But I was surprised um, in my career to be moving into and having these conversations and the ways in which I had really thought of myself in some ways as a person who used poetry as a way of thinking and that I was really engaging a lot with philosophy and these intellectual traditions and suddenly making way for the personal embodiments and the theories of embodiment that are already there and the ways it connected me to so many different disciplines and so many facets within um, my own kind of home discipline too. Could you describe for us a bit about the ecosystem that you're in? Because maybe some people are familiar with Kansas um, and the Lawrence area in particular, but I have a feeling many of our listeners probably are not. So could you kind of describe your ecosystem a bit for us? I'd be happy to. I was not familiar. I did not step foot in Kansas until I moved here for my employment at the university. And I had, there's a way in which I think people think traditionally about this part of the country as like flyover country, or, you know, if you're driving the place that you're trying to get, get through to get to where you want to go. And this ended up being by a number of what felt like accidental circumstances, but now seems to be a real I don't know. It, it seems to be a part of where I was supposed to go of some kind of larger plan. I ended up in Lawrence and I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere in my my life. Um, so it, it certainly is feeling like home. And that wasn't always the case. So when I first moved here, I really set out to explore and understand the ecosystem that I was suddenly a part of and to think about 
ways in which I could contribute and relate to and be a part of that ecosystem instead of, and this is something that happens quite frequently in academia, right? Like the sense that you're there, but you're not really there. And I didn't want to have that kind of extractive relationship with either the communities, with any of the communities in Lawrence and with Kansas more broadly. So, so I really set myself to getting to know this place. And one of the things that is abundantly obvious, and I'm very nerdy about my Instagram account and taking pictures there. I don't know if they're very good pictures, but I fell in love with the more than human, the other than human persons of this place. So it's filled with pictures of plants and some animals. I'm a little slow. So plants are, are more my speed for photographing and rivers and fields. And this is actually Northeast Kansas is a beautiful, beautiful place. And one of, and part of the larger tall grass prairie, we're on the edge of the tall grass prairie ecosystem and the very furthest um, reaches, Western reaches of Eastern deciduous forest. Uh, so it, it's this beautiful meeting place. Lawrence is on the ancestral lands of the Ka, Osage and Shawnee peoples. And it's also in the, the, the watershed of the Ka River or the, also known as the Kansas River. And we're close we're very close to the Wakarusa wetlands in town. That's the other, the Wakarusa River and the wetlands. And there's a fraught history behind that in Lawrence um, involving a traffic way and uh, residential school. And so there's also, I, I will not dive too far into that right now, but there are all sorts of histories of plants and animals and peoples, and they're all layered on each other. But um, Eastern deciduous forest, also tall grass prairie ecosystem, which used to be one of the largest ecosystems in the country and stretched up into Canada and down to the very southern parts of Texas, Mexico. And most of that is gone now. So most of my students, uh, University of Kansas is a public state university. Most of my students are from Kansas, but most of them don't have any sense of the unique ecosystem with which they're of which they're a part of. So there are only there are very few parts of the prairie that remain, and largely they remain just west of us in Kansas and further south in Oklahoma because of the unique geologies of that place and the fact that there are flint outcroppings in the, in the fields that made it impossible for European settlers to plow and to cultivate that land. So that still remains, much of that land still remains as, um, as, as, not untouched prairie, but as a remnant prairie. Um, so the not having been tilled, the soil biome, the interconnected web of plants and animals that thrive there. It's, it's really an interesting and beautiful place and has become deeply fascinating connections coming out of that too. And that ranchers have 
now become some of the biggest conservationists in Kansas um, because it's a place that's really where their cattle really thrive. So there are all these unexpected connections and alliances um, across the state. Yeah, it that's so fascinating. And it's good to hear more about kind of the fascinating parts of, of the ecosystem you're in and that you can kind of find it without knowing it once you start engaging more um, in the area that you're in, um, for sure. And yeah, it's fascinating that conservation and just being concerned about environmental health in general does end up connecting a lot of people and groups and uh, stakeholders that you wouldn't necessarily think of at first. Um, my mom works at a restoration company and I was telling her about some of my research and a lot of the men there are hunters. And, and so when she was talking about it, they were really interested in it because they're most frequently out in nature dealing with ecosystems, you know, for their hobbies. Um, and in some cases, their sustenance. So yeah, yeah it's interesting. I mean, hunters have a great deal of knowledge about land and the the many creatures that live there. And also, a, a, I don't want to make generalizations, but there's a having that kind of knowledge is a kind of care and is a kind of, I think cultivates a kind of deep respect for, for other than human beings. Yeah, definitely. Um, so within your work, um, what are some of the goals of your work? Um, and specifically when you're working with plants, what do you do and what do they do? Oh, that's a good question. I think about my work both in poetry, but also in writing essays and even more academic, uh, I don't know if I do really critical, but theoretical writing, thinking about it all under this, this larger frame of a poetics of encounter and the sense of through the writing, creating a space for the reader to encounter the world otherwise. Maybe see familiar people, familiar places, or completely unfamiliar as most people reading my work outside of the state of Kansas, um, thinking about those works as sites for encounter and thinking really about the ways in which the kind of writing I do and the kind of work that I create, I think really gives an opening for embodied experience. And in some ways I'm mapping my embodied experiences, but doing that as a way of inviting other people into the work and to um, feel into these questions because a lot of the things that I'm exploring, I think if I could, I mean, if I could write a traditional straightforward essay and just explain it, I would, but I'm thinking about 
things like what it means to know and care for someone who's so different than ourselves, right? So thinking about plants and thinking about the ways in which my sentience, my cognition is so different from, from the plant. Like, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of plants around me. Um, so thinking about this, this fern that's sitting next to me, and there are ways in which I can never know exactly what it is to be that fern, but it feels to me like it's deeply important for us to try to know and understand as much as we can. And deeply, I think from an ethics of care, care for them and to acknowledge that even though there are so many differences, we are always in each other's worlds. Like I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of the unvault and the way that we are, you know, we build our own words, worlds and we're, we're thinking about like this post Heideggerian thought about the ways in which we can't quite ever get out of our, our, our world, our consciousness, but we're always touching each other, right? We're always inserted in those worlds of, of beings other than ourselves. So they're always already a part of us. And we're always have this knowledge of them, even if we don't, I think the thing is, we don't see it. And we don't, we don't make space for that or acknowledge the the sacredness of 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 knowing um someone so different than ourselves and i mean this is something that even happens with people in our like human p- persons in our lives and there's only so much you can know or understand someone that you spend your whole life with right like you're you know a lifelong companion or partner and I'm really interested in, especially in this moment of species extinction and climate catastrophe, thinking about the real deep importance of a ethics of care, of caring deeply for people. And when I say people, I include other than human persons, um, plants, animals, rivers, lakes, people that we'll never meet that, um, and even thinking about people, I'm working on uh, an extinction project as part of a larger collaborative of people that we'll never be able to meet because they're already gone. And it seems to me there's something deeply important about this, um, this kind of care, this kind of knowing, and even I've been kind of more than batting around. I've been thinking a lot about what an environmental ethics of grace would look like, what it would mean to care deeply and love other beings in a way that isn't predicated on them having earned anything or being worthy and what it would mean or just to have to operate from this value of deep and abiding love for other other beings. fascinating I it is something that I think 
might be, it's not necessarily easier all the time, but more intuitive that we experience these types of relationships and that it is difficult to articulate, um, at least in like an essay, essay or argumentative fashion. <laughs> at least that's what I'm running into <laughs> as I write a dissertation on care ethics and plants um, is cared for because there are so many different questions. I think like when you actually open the door for plant cared fors and for an ethic of care that extends maybe not even just beyond humans to other animals or just beyond animals to plants, but like you said, rivers and mountains and ecosystems. And um, yeah, it really, it's something that I think is easier sometimes to be felt than to kind of cerebrally express. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of knowledge too. And there's something about, we could look at the institutions that we operate in. We could look at the history of colonialism and white supremacy and the way it's narrowed the sets of acceptable knowledge, like acceptable places where we can get knowledge to this very small, you know, this very small, hard to access group of people and sets of training and sets of language. So I'm I'm really interested in the way that plant studies and the plant humanities, I think uniquely allows for this opening into other fields of knowledge, whether we're thinking about traditional ecological knowledges, whether we're thinking, I mean, my work is super influenced and in debt to black feminist theory or thinking about you know we might be thinking about our own bodied experience and the ways in which feeling is thinking too it's a different it's a different way of taking in knowledge and 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 integrating that into how we sense and feel our way through the world um, and think about it too. I, I'm teaching in my queer ecologies class, I'm teaching uh, essays um, from Timothy Morton, who is one of my advisors and probably as a graduate student. Now I, I uh, still feels like uh, someone who's important in my life as a human being, but also through his work. And I think about his work in some ways operating in that space, right? Between, I don't, it's not something that I do very often from, you know, the challenge that you are facing as someone approaching this from a philosophical perspective, but being able to hold those things at the same time. And I, I keep thinking about this being really important work, the work that you're doing around care and thinking about this idea of grace too, as kind of a challenge to questions, not just of rivers and people and plant people and animals, but also thinking about like, how do we care about styrofoam? How do we care about these, these things that are very much, how do we care about the fact I'm reading this awesome, well, I read and I'm getting ready to teach this awesome essay by Michelle Murphy about contagion and chemicals and water in our bodies and about 
arts practices and around that. So thinking about these things that we would like to expel, that we would like to not be a part of us are very much us now. There is rocket fuel in almost all breast milk. So, <laughs> you know, how, how do we grapple with that too? Definitely. And it intersects so much with what I'm familiar with, uh, with Adrian Marie Brown too, like the different types of oppression and, you know, levels of kind of trying to restrict people as opposed to liberating people and how interconnected so many of the environmental issues that we face and articulating solutions to them even can be really fraught um, and difficult, surprisingly difficult for places of liberation and acts of liberation. I think about this oh. all the time in literature, people are terrified of anthropomorphism. Like that is the worst thing that you can do. And I'm like, but we're, we are doing that all the time. We're people like we're, I'm a human being. I cannot change that. I am a human being. So it's not about getting rid of that. It's about holding that simultaneously with what I can't grasp because when we're so afraid of this, these feelings, these ideas about possibilities of connecting, we see that an animal is starving, but we're unwilling to recognize an animal's joy, right? Like, and this seems really important to me because it, out of a fear of anthropomorphizing, out of a fear of not being able to understand, we restrict the level of experiences and the capacity to feel and think and be just full beings for all of these non-human plants and animals in ways that I think are, are doing a much more worse violence than me mistakenly thinking that that lion is like experiencing some real joy and they might be experiencing indigestion. You know, I don't, I don't know. Like, yeah, th there's still important. I think it's really important to hold space for the the possibility and uh, of these deeply felt and complicated and rich experiences. They're just as rich as our own, even if we can't quite see what's going on or how that's working. Absolutely. Um, and anthropomorphizing um, and anthropomorphism is definitely something that even in critical plant studies comes up all the time. I think especially because it's so controversial in some cases with other animals, let alone so many similarities because we're animals too. And so when it extends into plant life, then it's... it's <laughs> It it tends to be you know, considered so negatively, but there, I think, especially from an ethical perspective, like there are so many things we could leverage really well by allowing for a little bit of anthropomorphizing and erring on the side of like, oh, you know, maybe granting a little bit more possibility to those experiences, like you said, than even if we're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we don't get it right, but I don't I don't look at my, you know, my best friend all the time and 
judge judge her expression completely correctly but i but i know she's capable of all this range of things so yeah i have a lot of my friends in the university um are philosophers and about half of them laugh at me hysterically when i talk about plant consciousness <laughs> like they're like come on that is just normally i support you but that's too much and then the other half of them are like yeah, I mean, we can't really understand it, but they're clearly adjusting, adapting, communicating, responding. There, there's a deep intelligence that's very different than our own, and and a sense of mutuality and connection that's that's deeply fascinating. One of the things that the network is really interested in is having respect for plants. So that's one of the themes that kind of uh, brought together a hodgepodge collaboration of, of people interested in plants. Um, so one thing that we like to ask guests on the podcast is, what does it mean to you to have respect for plants and how is it embodied? Oh, that's a sweet question. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely traveled a path to go back to your earlier, you know, your, at the beginning of the question prompts. I definitely traveled a path and was probably working in the most cerebral area. As a poet, I was like, as a graduate student, I was very much like, no, I'm doing this experimental things. I'm breaking down these hegemonic relationships. And I, you know, it was very much out of my body and in my head it's I have a friend who's a poet and she said yeah I think I used to imagine my consciousness floated like two inches off of my nose in front of me <laughs> so I don't want to steal steal that but yeah there was a way in which I think and I think as someone who's had some difficult embodied experiences and being a young woman in the academy and facing a lot of, I guess it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but, you know, a, a lot of uh, misogyny, sexual violence towards my body. I think that surviving in that space for me felt like it was necessary to leave my embodied experience and not to talk about that and not to have space for that. And I think that's often the case for people who are in marginalized groups within the academy. And there's this sense in which talking about embodiment, that we don't talk about embodiments because the default assumption is like a white, able, male cis body and that there's so many works of literature I'm sure philosophical text that's the underlying assumption is is that and so it's it's like we don't have to think about it because that's everyone's body and that's everyone's experience and when people bring in their personal embodiments it it rustles things and um, but I think that's so important. And for me, getting to the plants, um, I think that's a roundabout way. I think I think my connections with plants 
really helped me to feel into that space. I, when I moved here, I don't know, I don't have a background in biology. I do now because I've gotten some wonderful grants and collaborated with some amazing colleagues and scholars and have gotten to audit field botany classes and all. I, so I, I've, I've, I've absorbed this, but I didn't grow up with a background in science. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that really prized those kinds of relationships. And, but as a young person, I did always feel solace in the coastal wetlands of Virginia where I grew up. And I spent a lot of time wandering around, um, sticking my fingers in the little the little marsh holes and, you know, seeing who was in there. And um, just, I just remember how tall, I don't think they were that tall. I think I was just very little, but uh, we had just maybe a block from our house. I used to just, I did not have the easiest um, young person life. And I used to skip out and uh, just hang out in the wetlands uh, for the afternoon and find, find real community and a sense of belonging there amongst the, the, the plants that were there. And I think I found that again, when I moved to Lawrence, Kansas and feeling kind of in ways, not at home at the university and trying to find how I fit into this place. And part of that was just going into the tall grass, the tall grass prairie, uh, preserve outside of Cottonwood Falls, outside of Strong Strong City, and spending time wandering through the prairie. And as someone who grew up on the ocean, there was the, the grasses and the sounds of the wind through the grasses and the expanse, that vastness felt like something that was big enough to hold um, the, the feelings I was having at that point and to hold me. Like I felt comforted by the the vastness of the place and I slowly started what through taking pictures sometimes through drawing um and talking to people to identify and learn more about the specific plants about the ecosystem of the prairie and simultaneously I got into gardening and eventually became good friends with uh, Kelly Kensher, who's the ethnobotanist at the University of Kansas and one of the world leading experts on tall grass prairie plants and thinking about medicinal uses and food uses and histories. And he started taking me out on walks with him and identifying plants and bringing over some of the plants that I really love, which other people apparently think are nuisances. <laughs> to my to me so I can grow them in my backyard the cup plants kind of took over a little bit they're more romantic in theory than in practice but um through tending to these plants just it became this act of this this series of practices that put me into my body again and made that feel like a safe space and as I was combining this very theoretical research with my embodied experiences of knowing the plants, I it suddenly kind of clicked and came together for me. 
I also had this amazing uh, experience and it ended up being on Zoom. It was supposed to be in person, but the uh, poet, disability scholar, performance artist, Petra Cuppers, who's at the University of Michigan organized an ecosomatics seminar symposium. And this was ended up happening during the fall of 2020 on Zoom. So during this period of mass loss and upheaval and isolation, coming into a community that connected of, of people who are doing research, especially, I mean, Petra's work is so important, doing, coming up with the words to explain and explore these practices that I was kind of engaging with, but didn't have a name for and didn't have a community for. So with that and becoming part of a queer disability arts community, um, I think they all came together. Um, but yes, the the plants earn the the deep respect. That's that's when I applied to be a fellow. That's what I was sharing was this um, this workshop on being with and breathing with plants. So. What were some of the plants you had mentioned briefly that you connected with that people might consider nuisance plants, but you really connected with? What are some of those? I mean, one of them that I mentioned was the cut plant. And cut plants are related to uh, their close relatives of sunflowers. And they they spread. I mean, I I still love them, but yes, I, I had to, I've given away many, I've dug up and given to friends, many cup plants because they will, they will go everywhere, but um, they're beautiful. And there's something just gorgeous about the way. So their stems are square. And when they grow up, the leaves form these cups and hence the name and they fill with water. So they provide sustenance to different pollinators that so sometimes you'll see a hummingbird drinking out of the cup plants, um, the cup plants cup. So I just, there's something about that, right? Thinking about interdependence and connectivity. And I definitely wrote about them and a lot of other plants in the Prairie Divination Project, um, which is thinking about looking towards these plants and uh, animals and just the members of the ecosystem. So yeah, so cup plant is one, and I don't know if people think of, I don't think people think of them as nuisances, but I've been thinking a lot about the blazing star, partially because um, I've been writing with them and I think they've become the title for my next, I think that my, yes, not I think, I know, my next manuscript um, is, is, is working right now with the title of Blazing Star. So thinking about um, the Liatris and the, it's like this purple, it's the sphere, um, their structures sphere and the, there's purple, feathery blaze. They're also known as a uh, gay flower. Um, so they're, they're just gorgeous. So I've been thinking and writing about the, the blazing star a lot. Do you have a favorite plant? And if so, what is it? I know it's a big question. <laughs> Isn't that a big question? I mean, 
goodness. Maybe I have a category of plant. Yeah. And it's a funny one living in Kansas. It's uh, I, I have difficulty um, supporting them personally. They have to live inside here. Not easy to grow outside, but I just have a real affection for ferns. The There's something about the texture and I, I love ferns, but I have, I shouldn't say this out loud because I have friends that I'm like the, I'm their plant person. So I'm always getting these beautiful gifts of plants, but my, my skills are pretty limited um, in terms of cultivating and I'm pretty low tech. Um, so I, ferns, I have some ferns that are doing really well, but I, I think there's something perverse in me loving them so much because they're not, they're not easy, but maybe I love not not easy things too. And they're easy in other places. Like I was just in the Pacific Northwest and Fern City. <laughs> um, you had talked a little bit about the ecosystem you grew up in. Um, one thing that I like to ask interviewees is kind of like what your history with plants is and when you first kind of became aware of them or if you have any people that really brought plants into your life? Yeah, I think my, when I moved to Virginia Beach, well, I mean, when I was a little kid, I grew up in the Driftless region of Illinois. And I remember being overwhelmed by the vastness of the plains, but I don't think, you know, it, not particular interconnections to to plants. Um, I think when I moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is in coastal Southern Virginia, I, that's when I really connected with plants. And that was living on a tributary of the Linhaven River off of the Chesapeake Bay and spending time in those coastal wetlands. Um, and for me, it was just I don't think I had any people who really, any human people who introduced or educated me. It really was a place of solace. So thinking about the the marsh grasses specifically and being able to lose myself in them. And I just remember the textures and the 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 pointy, I was just writing a poem, messing around with a poem about this. Um, and really basing on these these memories, but but thinking about the different grasses and specifically thinking about being enveloped by them and them feeling in their in the community, right? As being something that was much bigger than I was and some being someone who could provide shelter and who, provided wonder because of all of the animal life that was fostered there too, like the little frogs and the funny little crayfish type things. We have crayfish in um, their prairie, prairie crawfish. Uh, so, so yeah. So thinking about all the, the little beings and imagining myself as one of the little beings that got to live in the shelter of the marsh grasses. Something that's 
another kind of driving interest of members of the network is education. So many of us are teachers, many of us are students, some of us are practitioners that kind of both are teachers and students. Um, and so one question that we like to ask is, how do you identify? Are you a teacher? Are you a student? And how do you envision education? And do you think that it works well? Or what are some things that you think would be great uh, to see in education with plants? Oh, well, I mean, I am perpetually a student. I'm never, I hope I never stop being a student. Um, it's it's important me, for me to learn and to be consistently learning. By profession, I certainly am a teacher. Um, I'm collaborating this fall with a colleague in environmental studies who is, uh, who studies soil biomes. Her research is so cool. Uh, Dr. Peggy Schultz, and we're co-teaching a class. So she normally teaches an ecological restoration class, which is like going out and restoring ecosystems. Um, it's a fieldwork based class. And she was at the uh, National Conference for Ecologists and came back and was talking to one of our colleagues and saying how much she wanted to teach, not just how to restore the eco the ecosystem, but how we can learn from the ecosystems that we're a part of to restore ourselves. So thinking about relationships um, with, with the other than human world as sources for restoration, for sustenance. And I'm very grateful that Terry was like, oh, that's what Megan does. She was like, I don't know how to do that. And he was like, that's what Megan does. So now we're teaching a class called Care Practices, Ecological Restoration Community and Self. Um, and it's going to be a co-taught class in the spring. So I think I've fallen, I haven't fallen into, but I've been, I've been greeted. I've been welcomed by my colleagues doing work that's so different from my own. So I've been able to follow my, my practices as an artist, as a writer, and as a researcher and thinker, and where they've taken me and have been greeted wholeheartedly by so many people in all these other disciplines who, who know the things that I don't know. And I am exceptionally grateful is there's not really there are ways in which English departments are very conservative so there hasn't really felt like a home for my work at least institutionally where I am within our English department outside of more traditional poetry but I was invited to join the environmental studies program and this is my first year so I'm teaching I moved half of my line so um, I feel like there's just, I don't know, I feel like there's this larger understanding of the need and the value that these kinds of relationships and thinking can provide. And I'm teaching a queer ecologies class this semester, which is just like the delight of my, of my professional teaching life and the students that I get to interact with and thinking about ways in which queering our relationships with plants um, 
opens up all these possibilities and with queering our relationships with the institutions and all of these. So I, I'm really, so I guess that's the teaching thing. I'm, I'm trying to combine all of this more theoretical framework and these really serious thinking about these issues with openings for students to connect with their other sets of knowledges. So ancestral knowledges, embodied knowledges, personal knowledges, community, their arts and creative practices and creating a space to see the value of what those other knowledges can bring. And that, you know, I think that ties really deeply to the idea of having personal relationships with plants and that those personal relationships are things that oftentimes they feel they should be ashamed of or not talk about, but that those are real sources for, for wisdom and knowledge and making, I don't want to say making progress, but making openings um, towards, towards relationships and living, creating the worlds that we long to inhabit. Like I think that all of those things are tied together. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really beautiful. And as someone who's hopefully knock on wood slash a tree, <laughs> need to wrap up their dissertation soon. Um, it, it yeah, it makes me hopeful that there are more spaces becoming available for that type of work because it is something that I found students are really interested in. Um, although it is, it can be uncomfortable to kind of start, you know, shifting in those institutions, like seeing possibilities and alternatives. Um, but I mean, in a lot of our disciplines, like students have to shift a lot to like see it through the particular perspective of that discipline. So it's, it's encouraging and congratulations on, on connecting with environmental studies. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think about this when the university is very, not the university, but the the larger humanities are afraid about the humanities dying. And I'm like, no, I mean, maybe traditional notions of what the humanities do, and maybe some of them should should go by the wayside. But I mean, I think that this kind of interdisciplinary research is just so alive both with students and in seeing how it's necessary for us thinking, feeling, creating our way out of this, this moment that is a moment of, of catastrophe that we don't really want to, we don't really want to stand. <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any other current projects or things that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Well, I mean, I have Quietly Between, which is a collaborative uh, project of poetry and uh, photography. And it I'm one of four poets in that project and photographers, but really examining place and our relationship to place and plants. Um, so that just came out and is available um, in bookstores and online and everything. But the project that I'm finishing up now and that I'm really 
excited about, and that's been in my background when we're talking, is uh, I guess it will be my fourth full-length collection of poetry, which is called Blazing Star. And it's it's this, uh, I guess it focuses on interspecies collaboration and communication with plants, and also on thinking towards transcorporeal embodiment. So thinking about the ways in which we're all entangled at a bodily level with each other. And it started out as very serious. And, you know, this is, this is what is truly going on. And the next thing that no, you know, there are like these speculative embodiments coming out that are also transcorporeal. So there are plants that are coming out of, you know, tendrils coming out of arms. So it's also a queer speculative uh, ecology too. So thinking around connection, community, healing, chronic illness. Um, so so um, you can find me at megankaminsky.com and there are links there to a number of projects, events that are coming up, also publications, um, the Prairie Divination deck, my three books of poetry, the collaborative book. So that's a great place. And I have a tiny letter email list, which I promise does not go out very often, maybe like four or five times a year total. But that's a place where I update on workshops. I do a lot of community workshops, both in person and online. So oftentimes there are opportunities to, to, to write and think with plants through a, a community workshop or a writing workshop setting. And I'm also on Instagram and pretty easy to find, um, pretty easy to find there. Well, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Um, this has just been such a lovely conversation. Um, if people want to find out more about our organization, feel free to find us at networkingwithplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Thank you again and go out there and enjoy some plants. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.